This podcast may have explicit content. We've tried to bleep it out, but when the Roadrunner gets naughty, we can't bleep it out. We can only meep meep it out. It's Monday, October 15th, 2018 from Slated to the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Less than three weeks to some fairly big, I'm going to say fairly big midterms. And we're talking about all the important things. Is Elizabeth Warren really Native American? Does the president know more about the value of NATO than Jim Mattis? And does the fact that Jim Mattis is, quote, sort of a Democrat come into play? Also, CNN has a poll asking this question. Who's the leading 2020 Democratic presidential candidate? Joe Biden's on the top with 33. The last two names on the list, Bullock and Delaney. They were polling at less than 1%. I have to tell you, I do this for a living, and I did not know which Bullock or Delaney they meant. Rob Delaney, funny guy on Twitter. Jim J. Bullock for the block of the president's agenda. I'd love to hear Jim J. Bullock's thoughts on the Monroe Doctrine. That's my too close for comfort imitation is my best imitation. It's a show that no one remembers anymore. But Ted Baxter, that was his character's name, used to say, "Mm, mm, Monroe. Second name on the list of leading contenders for 2020 is Bernie Sanders. And on this week, this week, we learned the answer to this important question. Does Bernie Sanders ever talk about himself as the third Bernie? Yes, he does. Bernie wants to end the absurdity of hundreds of thousands of bright young kids not being able to afford to go to college and millions leaving school deeply in debt. He thinks, Bernie thinks, it's more important to invest in the needs of our infrastructure and our working families rather than giving tax breaks to billionaires and large profitable corporations. Bernie thinks that we should raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour, and I'm proud of the work that many of us did in helping to raise that wage at Amazon. 350,000 workers now are gonna be making at least 15 bucks an hour. So what Bernie wants to do is to have a government that represents all of us, not just wealthy campaign contributors. Yes, he's Bernie. He's the real Bernie. All the other Bernie Sanders are just random gas bags. Won't the real Bernie please stand up? Oh, wait, wait. I just wanted to say that that was not even the best thing said on This Week This Week. Former New Jersey governor and Easy Pass archenemy Chris Christie was on the show saying that Donald Trump looked good after receiving a visitor in the Oval Office Mr. Kanye West. I think people look at that and it makes Donald Trump more accessible, more normal well, and, than and he, some other presidents. Yeah, by comparison, sure. There's the strategy. Just juxtapose yourself with a Looney Tunes extremist and you seem normal, which is, of course, exactly what Kanye West was thinking going in. On the show today, I spiel about the fourth leading Democratic candidate, according to that CNN poll. Who is it? Is it Ted Knight? Is it Grover Cleveland? Is it Mike Gravel? No. It's Elizabeth Warren. If you tab a MacArthur-winning genius scientist to bolster claims about your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, you might be a candidate. But first, are you bearish on the market? Are you bearish on our future? Well, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, but I've got something for you to be really bearish about. Bears. Its neck should get so large that its head starts looking disproportionately small. The belly should hang as close to the ground as possible. 
the fur coat should be glossy and thick enough to cover up scars. Me, on Thanksgiving evening, no, no. We are talking about the platonic ideal for a fat bear. We've recently got done with Fat Bear Week up in Alaska, and this brings up the opportunity to check in with our bear expert. Did you know that just had one? Raywing Grant has not been on in a little bit, but we need to have her back. And so here she is. She's a carnivore ecologist with the National Geographic Society and a visiting scientist at the National History Museum. Hello, Ray. How have you been? Hi, thank you. I've been busy with bears, but really good. So let us talk about Fat Bear Week. I didn't even know this existed, and it apparently has become uh, an explosively famous thing on Twitter. What is the purpose of this? Is it to mock the bears? Absolutely not to mock the bears. In fact, you are not alone. Most people did not know that Fat Bear Week existed. And Fat Bear Week didn't really exist until recently. So I think it happened in 2017. But before that, it was Fat Bear Day. It was Fat Tuesday. (laughs) So not the Mardi Gras one, but the uh, early fall Fat Bear Tuesday that Katmai National Park um, started. And the reason they started it was because they don't get a lot of tourist traffic. So, Mm -hmm. you know, up there in Alaska, there are some national parks that get tons of visitors every year, lots of bear views, but Katmai is not that park. And they really wanted to expose their natural beauty to the world. They came up with this amazing concept. And this year, in fall 2018, you know, my thoughts are that people need a bit of a break from all the political and economic news out there. And so it has just caught on like wildfire. Yeah. Um, so the fattest bear known to man before this year's Fat Bear Week was Bear 480. He's known as Otis. And he had, he was just perfect in terms of, you know, if you had a Westminster bear club, he would fit all the particulars of the rolls of the neck. And also, I think people (laughs) liked his personality, the way he would slowly eat a sockeye salmon and just not give uh, an F about anything. Absolutely. And Otis, God bless him, is getting up there in age. So he Mm -hmm. was packing on those pounds, but aging gracefully. So I think this year he's 22 years old. And so in wild bear years, that is senior citizen level. So we might not have too many more years of dear Otis uh, shocking us with his weight gain. Do bears live longer in captivity or in the wild? They do. Most animals live longer in captivity because they're so well taken care of. I mean, they get to go to the dentist and they get to go to the doctor and they get vaccinated for diseases and all of those kinds of things. They get meals and don't have to hunt. I mean, absolutely everything. So we usually see bears um, and other mammals living fairly long lives in captivity. And in the wild, you know, it's it's a ruthless place. But, you know, mid-20s is around the average age for um, for bears to pass away. Well, let's talk about uh, quality of life there for a bear up at a national park or this national park in Alaska. Is it good? Is it good to be a bear there? It's fantastic, especially in the summertime when we have all of this fish. So they have a very healthy natural diet that is not Uh, touched very much by human impact. Brown bears, in this case, eat a lot of different things. I mean, they are pretty well known to, you know, roll over a log and eat all the grubs and insects underneath. And, you know, they'll dig up some tubers and bulbs to eat in the springtime. And, you know, if they come across some eggs or some small mammals or something, they'll definitely eat those too. But their absolute favorite is fish. I mean, and during the spawning season or the salmon runs, these fish just jump practically into their mouths. So the bears are happy. The fish are fairly unhappy. But the bears are happy and they get their favorite food. The quality of 
life in terms of eating is fantastic. There's an abundance of resources. Now, since we like to anthropomorphize these bears so much, it is debatable whether this whole extensive winter um, contributes to that high quality of life. Because if you ask me, sleeping for six months in a pile of snow sounds atrocious, but mm-hmm. the bears don't seem to mind. So so this year, uh, Otis, this legendary bear, was actually beat, and he was beat in his first round matchup against bear 409 Beadnose. And Beadnose went on to win the whole thing. So visually, you've seen many, I know your uh, expertise is black bear, but you've seen many a fat brown bear in your life, Yes. I certainly have. Where does Beadnose rank up there in terms of the uh, portliest of the ursine specimens that you've come across? This lady (laughs) is absolutely humongous. I mean, I, of course, haven't seen her with my own eyes, but I have been watching all of the video. I have been following her progression of weight gain over the summer, and she is huge. Now, it's worth mentioning that brown bears in North America vary in size, of course, especially regionally. And so this part of Alaska is well known for having some of the biggest brown bears on the continent. So we find brown bears in the lower 48 states might be, you know, 600 pounds. We'll find some brown bears in other parts of Canada that might be 800 pounds. And species or, you know, subpopulations like we're finding in Alaska and beadnose in particular, I mean, they're getting to be about a thousand pounds or so, which is just enormous. So objectively, she's one of the biggest bears that exists right now that we know about on the continent. So is there such a thing as too big? I bet during the Middle Ages, there was some conversation. Well, you know, the king, he's quite fat, but of course you can't be too fat. Food's scarce. Fatness is good. (laughs) I mean, is there such a thing as bear obesity? You know, that's a complicated question because The ecological answer is no. So in ecology, which is a study of the environment and the way organisms interact with their environment, there is this theory that most animals live by, and essentially it's it's called fitness. So all animals want to maximize their fitness. And us people in the Western world think of fitness as being slim and trim and active and that kind of thing. And in the animal world, it's not quite the opposite, but fitness means everything you need to do to make sure that you're your genetics are abundant in the gene pool to make sure you're the most likely to get your um, offspring healthy and make sure that they survive. And so in the bear world, that really means being fat because the fatter you are, the more likely you are to survive the winter. The more likely you are to survive the winter, the more likely you are to start the spring and the summer being pretty healthy and being able to mate right away. The more likely you are to make right away, mate right away, the more likely you are to have more babies every year. And so Really, these really, really humongous, kind of gross fat bears are maximizing their fitness. And that's what Darwin was talking about when he said survival of the fittest. It wasn't the strongest. It wasn't the most athletic, you know, individual that could knock off the next guy. It was who has the most genes in the gene pool. This is an impossible question, but I've read stories about passenger, I think passenger pigeons, maybe it's a different breed of pigeons, that there were so many that they would literally darken the sky. And this is when, this is when people were around to chronicle them and, and they, were, they were all killed by man. If man never encroached on their territory, what would the bear population look like, do you think? How many more bears would there be? Would would they be the dominant species as an apex predator in, you know, most of Canada and some of the United States? 
I love this question because it's not as surprising as you might think. And that's because bears are territorial for one. So it's not like you're ever going to find a whole bunch of bears in one place. That's highly unnatural for them unless they're doing something like catching salmon in their mouths where they don't really need to compete that much for resources. But they each require their own territory. So they're solitary creatures, unlike lions in a pride that have huge prides or wolves in a pack. Right? So just because of that, there wouldn't be tons and tons of bears everywhere. And also because when we have no humans around, we often find we have the proper what we call trophic structures. Mm. You can also think of it as the food web. So it's completely intact. So although bears are these big, large-bodied carnivores, they would be competing with um, wolves. They'd be competing with mountain lions. They'd be competing with coyotes and, you know, other smaller bear species all the way down to the herbivores, all the way down to the plants and the decomposers. And so really there would be enough, a normal number of each species. So, you know, a wild North America isn't quite as crazy filled with animals as we might think. Ah, fascinating. Now I want to, I've been reading up on hibernation because I got interested and I got interested in Fat Bear Week. That means it worked. I started educating myself about hibernation. And there were a couple things I didn't know. Like, I didn't know until, I don't know, 10 years ago, but you correct me on exactly the time frame. Scientists strongly suspected bears hibernated, but they used weasel phrases like winter sleeping because they never fully documented bear hibernation. I guess you couldn't take a blood sample without waking the bears. But then... They found out that bears do hibernate. And that was my shock that this was, you know, this went on. I guess when you were in school learning about bears, did they even officially know that bears hibernated? Yeah, so there are some animals out there that do, quote-unquote, true hibernation, where their bodies completely shut down and cut off everything until they awaken again. And you're right. We didn't necessarily know that about bears because it's so difficult to actually get up close and monitor a bear's vital signs without waking it up. And that was an indication that maybe they weren't hibernating after all since they were so easy to wake up. So, (laughs) you know, we needed some advancements in technology. We needed some really brave people to get in there (laughs) and try to monitor bears while they're actually in a deep sleep. So I've seen hibernating bears before, um, but I've always woken them up just briefly just to get a little sample. Uh Uh-huh. And they're groggy and and they don't know what to do. They're groggy. They don't know what to do. We quickly put them back to sleep with some drugs and they are fine and are healthy and we're able to monitor them. But it's true. I mean, a lot of advances have been made recently and a lot of people don't know that even with fairly common species like black bears, brown bears, we're still gathering a lot of data and making new discoveries. And from what I understand, I guess when you say a truly hibernating species, uh, you know, a marmoset or something, their metabolism slow to something like 2% of normal and bears don't get down quite that low, but it drops to what? Less than half, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, every part of the bear's natural cycles really drops. I mean, they start breathing maybe one breath every 60 seconds. Their heart rate slows to definitely less than half, if not close to a quarter. (laughs) They actually um, don't urinate or defecate while they are hibernating. Their body naturally recycles all of their waste within their body, which is absolutely fascinating. And then they just slowly use up their fat stores, and that's it. It's, I think, more impressive for female bears who hibernate because if a female bear is pregnant when she goes into hibernation, she will give birth 
during the winter while she's hibernating. So it usually occurs in the month of January, so around the new year. All female bears give birth to their babies, and they just kind of slip out. They don't wake up. The babies slip out of there. They're really, really tiny compared to the mother's body size. And the newborns just go and they nurse on their mother, further depleting her fat stores. But they nurse for three, four, five, sometimes six months. And then when the mother bear wakes up after hibernation, she's got her kids and they all leave. Interesting. So when these fat bears go into hibernation, one of the great things about Fat Bear Week is you see the before and after pictures. And they are to the bear layman, unlike you. They seem largely unrecognizable. Absolutely. Um, And I know that... The experts tag bears, but are there other ways that you would be able to tell, oh, yeah, that's the uh, that's bead nose who I used to see? <laughs> well, you know, it's pretty hard when their bodies change so much. So it's even difficult for someone like me, who's a bear expert, to tell that bead nose is the same bead nose from before when she was skinny versus when she's fat. And one of the reasons is because these brown bears in particular, they store their fat in crazy places like their necks. And yeah. so their necks will and, and go Bitcoin. from being— yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm thinking something else. <laughs> they go from being long and lean to kind of so fat that it makes their heads look quite small. So, you know, there's certainly markers. Bears will have different scars or maybe nicks on their face or their body um, that can help us identify them. Of course, coloration is really important as well. But they're not like other carnivores. So I used to study lions, which was really, really fun. African lions in East Africa. And each lion has a unique whisker pattern that's almost like a fingerprint. So Mm. if you zoom in your camera or if you get close enough to a lion and take a picture, you can compare the whisker pattern to a different one and identify individuals. It's much harder with bears, so we really do try to tag them. That's the exact detail we need for Zootopia 2, the unique (laughs) whisker pattern of the lion. Absolutely. It's important. Yeah. I mean, that's that was the first way I learned how to tell lions apart. So that was pretty old school, but that's how we did it. Ray Wynne Grant is a carnivore ecologist with National Geographic Society and uh, now a visiting scientist with the Museum of Natural History. Ray, thanks for coming on again. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mike. the spiel. Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts by way of Oklahoma, by way of the Cherokee Nation, maybe, sought to beat back that nickname that Trump bestowed on her. You know it. Pocahontas. That's this Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Pocahontas? So what'd you say? It may be Pocahontas. Remember that. Pocahontas. What? What did you say? My name is Pocahontas. So today, in a video release, not a straight-to-video Disney release, but a release on the YouTubes of a video, and also a report by the Boston Globe, Senator Warren provided documentation that shows she does, in fact, have some Native American ancestry, though it is in the distant, too quite distant, past. Carlos Bustamante, Stanford researcher and MacArthur Genius Grant winner, was brought in, and here he is on the video, confirming this. In the senator's genome, we did find five segments of Native American ancestry with very high confidence, where we believe the error rate is less than one in a thousand. Somewhere between six and ten generations ago, 
there is Native American ancestry, which does fit into the story Elizabeth Warren was told when she was a little girl. Of course, the DNA test shows that the likeliest relative would be a, I want to get this right, great, 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 great grandmother, which is to say eight generations ago. Conservatives jumped on the distance of that relation to mock it as going so far back as to be irrelevant. Also, conservatives said, while we're doing DNA testing on Elizabeth Warren, can we make sure she's not the Zodiac killer asking for a friend? But I would say, even if Elizabeth Warren is one 512th Native American or one 1,024th Native American, I think it does make Trump calling her Pocahontas a slur, a bona fide slur, because we know how Trump's logic worked. He would say it's not a slur, because she's not Native American, therefore I can't demean her as being a Native American because she's not, which is my point all along. In the video, Warren addresses the question of whether she used her status as a Native American for professional advantage. You hear from eight deans and leading law professors who were asked, was her heritage a factor in her hiring? And they all say, no, no, no. Her heritage had no bearing on her hiring, period. I was chairing the committee that year. If ethnicity had been part of the discussion, I would have known about it. I believe them and I'll tell you why. Of the eight who were interviewed, eight are men and seven are white men, the exception being Randall Kennedy of Harvard, who is African-American. Elizabeth Warren was hired by men, overwhelmingly hired by white men, I'm sure would have liked diversity, but they really made no effort to require it. And therefore, it's logical. She didn't see a big point in emphasizing it. Last month, the Boston Globe did a story on this and they reported they talked to 31 law school professors from Warren's time at Harvard and all but one said her Native American heritage was not discussed as part of the decision to hire her. And that last one said he was unsure if it came up. But if it did, it had no bearing on his vote. Why is any of this important? Well, it's not. But let's say it were. Let's say trying to figure out how she used her Native American ancestry for professional advantage. Why would that matter to a Trump voter? Well, a Trump voter probably wouldn't care if she was just using it to increase her cachet in academia. But, but... If she got a job because of it, that's, that's a big problem to them. They're probably thinking, you know why I haven't been hired as a machinist in the Midwest? It's not because of automation or the Chinese or being undercut. No, it's because someone with different heritage, who is probably lying, got the job instead of me. This is, you know, the thinking of people, not, not maybe the best thinking in the world, but how people think. So they're thinking all these jobs are going to Mexico. Is it because the Mexicans are cheaper? Is it because they get to claim they're Latino if they, in fact, are? Same with the Chinese. And this, they can grouse to their fellow members of the Elk Club as they sit and watch Fox News. All in all, the Republican, or at least the Trumpist take on Elizabeth Warren's DNA result was really, really predictable. And the take was, let's diminish the defense as wholly inadequate, even though really it's the charge itself that warrants no attention. But the liberal take did surprise me. Rather than rally around the wrong senator, I saw a lot of liberals saying, not now, Senator Warren. It's not about you. Jim Messina, Obama 2012 campaign manager, tweeted, quote, argue the substance all you want. But why 22 days before a crucial election where we must win House and Senate to save America? Why did at Senator Warren have 
to do her announcement now. Why can't Dems ever stay focused? Well, Mr. Messina, winning the Senate is extremely unlikely, and Warren is, in fact, in a Senate race. And in her Senate race, where she's leading, the opponent's big issue is to pound on that Native American ancestry. So she's doing what she can to focus on her Senate race, and yes, of course, also increase her chances should she run for president. Is it a distraction? I don't know. I think a couple things are unlikely. One unlikely thing is that there's a cackling Trump supporter who will see this DNA test and say, oh my God, wait, the guy who did it won a MacArthur Genius Grant? I was wrong. I was wrong. I'm taking off my MAGA hat and shutting off Jesse Walters right now. And I will say this, I was wrong. That's not going to happen. But you know what else I don't think is going to happen? Someone's about to go to the polls in West Virginia, and he's saying to himself, well, I should vote for Joe Manchin. He's going to save my health care. Also, he's been a pretty good politician all my life, and I really don't like his opponent. But um, some other senator from some other state is now claiming she's really a Native American and uh, has some DNA testing to prove it. But it's not really that close a relationship. I don't know. People vote for weird reasons. Maybe Jim Messina is right. Although perhaps it can be argued, and we'll see if it can be argued, because I'm going to argue it right now. Perhaps it can be argued that Elizabeth Warren taking a stand on this issue right here, right now, is a boon to all her fellow Democrats. Let's take Arizona, where Kirsten Sinema, Democrat for Senate, has an ad out that makes this claim. We have the desert in our blood. Desert in the blood? Oh, she claims to descend from the desert? Road runner, meep, meep. I call her road runner. Or Joe Biden, the leading Democrat in 2020, according to that CNN poll, he once said this. I'm still a Senate man. I may be vice president, but uh, it's, still in, it's still in my blood. I could see President Trump using his stump speech to call for a DNA test to pick up the presence of subcommittees or rotundas in Joe Biden's blood from six generations ago. You know, even Al Gore once bragged this way. I was in it long enough to get the, uh, the printer's ink in my veins a little bit. <laughs> Are there really inky? I call him inky. Where's Blinky? Where's Clyde? If nothing else, Elizabeth Warren is trying to fight back against the executive nicknameization of America. It might be a losing fight, but like her great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother would have said, it's a fight worth having. And that's it for today's show. Pierre BNMA and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. Well, I mean, Daniel was homesick today. Was he sick? Or was he dehydrated from spitting into a vial so he could send it cross country in a desperate attempt to stop a bully from making fun of his great, 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 great grandmother? Plausible. TJ Raphael is just senior producer. She claims that she's a pretty competent swimmer and has a friend named Sebastian. I call her Little Mermaid. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's been here for a while now, but he's about to melt away. Olaf, I call him Olaf. The gist. What Bertie wants is to be hugged and told he's special. Wait, have I revealed too much? Not hugged by the millionaires and the billionaires. Small donors. I hope I've saved it. Oy vey. Oomperu depperu dupperu. And thanks for listening.